Well, good morning. It's great to see you. My name is Richard. I'm part of the team here at St. Paul's. Hope you had a good Christmas and New Year. And it's nice to be able to speak to you a little bit this morning. We live in a, a very instant world, don't we? A very instant world. I, um, over Christmas, scrolled through the TV guide on my Virgin uh, TiVo box. Other TV supplies are available. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and literally, at the click of a button, I was able to record any number of programs that I thought myself or Julie or the kids might want to watch. Just at the click of a button, done, it's recorded. And I think at the click of maybe two or three buttons, I was able to record an entire series of The World's Strongest Man, which of course, which of course for all of us, is essential Christmas and New Year's viewing. So it was amazing. So I haven't, I haven't watched all of that yet, so please don't tell me who won. But I was very excited. Literally, the click of a couple of buttons, I could record an entire series of something so fantastic as that. Now, some of you will be thinking, sure, that's how life is. Uh, That's surely how life has always been. But it hasn't always been like that. Life has not always been that instant. Some of you will remember something called the video player, the VCR. Some of you will remember spending hours kneeling in front of this machine trying to work out how to record a program that was about to come on like in an hour's time but you knew you were going to miss because you were out. And some of you as teenagers will have a vivid memory of your mum or your dad, such a traumatic experience for a teenager, seeing your mum or your dad kneeling in front of this contraption that they've bought, trying to figure out how to use the timing facility on the VCR, and, and you can see the frustration and the anguish on their face. They think, surely it must be more simple than this. And in today's world, it is. You just click a button, and you've recorded a program, or you click a couple of buttons, you record an entire series of programs. It really is quite amazing. My son, Ben, uh, for Christmas, one of the things that he received was he got um, FIFA 14, which is a computer game. And he got it on the PlayStation, and uh, sometimes you put the game in and you have to download an update from the internet. And it can seem like a lifetime. In actual fact, it's about 30 seconds or maybe 45 seconds at the most. But, you know, it can seem in this instant world like, God, it's taking forever to download this, um, this update. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I remember the days of the ZX Spectrum 48K+. Some of you will remember, does anyone remember the ZX Spectrum? Wonderful. Some of you had such a thing. And uh, you'll, you'll know that you could spend your hard-earned money on purchasing a game that came on something that was called a cassette. Some of you remember those things. And you put it into a cassette player. And then you had to fine-tune the volume on the cassette player to try and find the volume that the computer liked and the tape player liked. And it was just, it was just the whole thing was a gamble. And you'd watch the screen, and it would change all these different colors. And then sometimes after 20 minutes of just waiting for this game, hoping that this game that you'd spent your pocket money on, hoping that it would load, the whole thing just sort of freezes, nothing happens, and the game never, ever worked. Unbelievable. And yet today, just to download a small update for FIFA 14 can seem like a lifetime. We live, don't we, in a really, really instant world where we think things happen just at the click 
of a button. And I wonder in that kind of instant world, what place is there for prayer? What place is there for prayer in that world where we think things just happen, just like that? Do we think that prayer is just too passive an activity to engage in? There's a story about King Ethelbert. King Ethelbert was a, a, an, an ancient British king who um, ruled over what is basically kind of Kent. And in 562 AD, King Ethelbert's wife heard the gospel and she gave her life to Christ. King Ethelbert, they were previously pagans. She gave her life to Christ. And King Ethelbert, uh, being a, a good husband, probably done the marriage course in an ancient form, decided that he would um, build his wife a chapel so that she could practice this new faith, this new religion that she'd found. And apparently every day, King Ethelbert's wife would go into this chapel and would pray for the salvation of her husband. Every day, she'd go in, day after day after day, praying, crying out to God that her husband might be saved. She prayed every day for 35 years. You imagine what that must have been like. Actually, some of you may know what that's like. Every day thinking, is today going to be the day, God? Is there any point in me carrying on? Every day for 35 years, praying for her husband. And then one day in 597 AD, God answered her prayer in the most extraordinary way, in a way that she probably could never have imagined God might answer. In 597, a group of monks came to England from Rome. They preached the gospel. King Ethelbert heard the gospel and gave his life to Christ. His kingdom became a Christian kingdom. From that point on, more monks came from Rome. One of the monks that came was St. Augustine. St. Augustine built Canterbury Cathedral on the site of King Ethelbert's wife's chapel. Monks from Canterbury Cathedral from that time went out all the way across Britain, evangelizing the parts of this nation that the Celtic Christians hadn't yet evangelized. They saw many, many people in this nation come to faith. And that cathedral down in Canterbury became the hub of Anglicanism, a movement that would change not just this nation, but many nations. Every day for 35 years, King Ethelbert's wife prayed for his salvation. And when the answer came, it was so unimaginably bigger than what she may have thought it would have been. Incredible answer to prayer. In our instant world, what place does that kind of determined, persevering prayer have? Today we're starting a series looking at this chapter in John 17, this prayer that Jesus prays. It's the longest prayer that we have of Jesus' within the Gospels. It's prayed on what we call Maundy Thursday. It's probably prayed 
in the upper room with his disciples after he's taught them the various things that he teaches through John 13 through John 17. And then after he's prayed this prayer, it's as if he then leaves that room and he goes to Gethsemane. And we're going to look at today the part where Jesus prays for himself, next week the part where he prays for his disciples, and then the week after that when he prays for us. That's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. Let me just read the verses again, and then we'll take a look at it. So it says, After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Father, I pray that as we look at your word, as we look at your son at prayer, Father, that you might kindle in our hearts a passion for prayer, that we might learn from his example. In Jesus' name, amen. This may sound really simple, but I think one of the things that I find most fascinating is simply the fact that Jesus prayed. Simply the fact that Jesus prayed. Jesus is God incarnate. He was God in human form, God in human flesh. We've been celebrating that over the last few weeks. And yet Jesus prayed. Jesus gave himself to prayer. During his earthly life, Jesus modeled prayer. He taught on prayer. He was known for his prayerfulness. Some of the, um, the writers, the kind of writers of the epistles, um, they don't make a great deal of reference to Jesus' earthly life. They talk about the significance of his death and his resurrection and those kind of things. They don't tell as much about his earthly life. But one of the things that the writer of Hebrews says is this in chapter 5. He says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. One of the things that the writers of the epistles do comment on about Jesus' life is that Jesus was prayerful. Jesus was prayerful. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. Jesus' ministry was bookended by prayer. If you remember, his ministry began at his baptism, and from there the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. He spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, fasting and praying, surely, praying to God, speaking to his Father, offering his life to God, seeking his Father's face in prayer. And then at the end of his earthly life, as he's hanging on the cross, he's still prayerful. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. During his earthly life, we read of Jesus getting up early in the morning to find that place of prayer, to find that place of solitude that he might speak 
to his father. We read of him um, trying to escape from the crowds and the busyness of ministry, crossing over Lake Galilee to try and be alone with his disciples in order that he might be with them and in order that he might pray. We read about him devoting whole nights of prayer, a whole night of prayer before he appoints the 12 apostles. And we read of him giving himself to prayer before he makes major decisions in his ministry. There's a really interesting um, sequence of events in Matthew chapter 14 where we read of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with just a small packed lunch. An incredible display of Jesus' power and his authority on the earth to feed a huge crowd of people with just a tiny amount of food. It's amazing. And then a few verses later, we read of Jesus. He, he, he gets down to the shore of Lake Galilee, and he's literally missed the boat. His disciples have set off for the other side without him, and he's stuck there on the shore. And so rather than taking the long way round, as in walking around the shore of the lake, we read that Jesus just decides to take the shortcut, and he just starts walking out across the surface of the lake. He walks on water across Lake Galilee, and in the middle of the lake somewhere, He catches up with his disciples who are struggling and there's a storm and Jesus calms the storm. Another incredible display of Jesus' power and authority here on the earth. And there's a few verses in between. And what do we discover Jesus has been doing in between those two incredible acts of power and authority? He's been praying. Jesus has missed the boat because he's been praying. Isn't it amazing that despite all of that power, all of that authority, Jesus still gave himself to prayer. He still prioritized prayer. His giftedness was no substitute for prayerfulness. And then we read of him becoming frustrated, angry in the temple. And he's angry about prayer, if you like. That doesn't explain it very well. But he comes into the temple and the temple court is full of people changing money. And Jesus is angered by that. And it might be because that was the place for the Gentiles to come. That was where they came to pray and actually it had been taken over with kind of the Jewish religious system. It might have been because... There was corruption in what they were doing. It was probably both of those things, maybe more. But Jesus is angered by what he sees and he turns the tables over and he he sort of he throws people out of the temple. And he says, My father's house, quoting from Isaiah, he says, My father's house should be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it into a den of robbers. Jesus' heart was that his father's house, the temple might be a house of prayer, a place of prayer for the nations. I think that's a personally challenging verse. Because if you think about it, the temple was the place for the Jewish faith where God resided on the face of the earth. That was the place where heaven touched the earth. So it was so essential to their faith. That's why when the temple was destroyed in the exile, it was, it was such a tragedy because, well, that's the place that God lives. And then at the point of Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple 
the thing that separated, if you like, humanity from the very presence of God, that temple gets torn in two. And suddenly, through the death of Jesus, humanity has a different kind of access to God, a different kind of relationship with God. After his resurrection, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on a large group of people gathered in that upper room. And Jews and Gentiles during the story of Acts receive the Holy Spirit. God no longer resides in a stone building. God resides in the, house, in the, in the hearts of his people. And then Paul writes, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Actually, it's us who are to be that house of prayer. It's us. That's the place that God resides. Within us, by his Spirit, we're called to be that house of prayer for all nations. So let me ask you, what do we want to be known for? What do we as God's people want to be known for? And I'm not trying to say we want to be known for one thing over another, but surely one of the things that we would want to be known for as individuals and as a church is that we would be known as that house of prayer, that place of prayer. People that seek the face of God for the nations of the world. And the amazing thing is that if we were to ask the question, what is Jesus doing right now? If we were to ask the question at 5 to 12 on the 5th of January 2014, what is it that Jesus is doing right now? Well, the Bible says that he's still praying. He's still praying. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, for me. What an amazing thing. He ascended Jesus, still giving himself to prayer. So what can we learn from observing Jesus at prayer from this chapter? So I want to, I've got five things I'm going to say. I'm going to try and say them quickly, so don't be too alarmed in this instant world. The first thing is that Jesus begins by addressing God as Father. Father. Prayer is a relationship. It's a conversation between our Heavenly Father and his adopted children. Jesus begins by saying, Father. There's 21 prayers of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. 20 of them begin with the word Father. The only one that doesn't is his cry from the cross, which I quoted earlier where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other prayer, he starts by saying Father. That word Father is a translation, or in our Bibles, a translation of the Aramaic word Abba. Abba was the word that young children would use to address their male parent. Really, it means daddy, 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 the time has come. 
Daddy, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Daddy, into your hands I commit my spirit. When I was young, and my dad used to put me to bed, I remember um, he would say to me, as he was kind of tucking me in, he'd say almost every single night, I think, that he did it, he'd say, he'd say, Richard, I think the world of you. And at the time, I remember as a young child, I had no idea at all what that meant. I mean, I knew it was like a nice thing. I knew it was a nice thing for him to say. I didn't have a clue. I didn't understand what he was saying. And gradually, as I got older, it came to me that actually what my dad was saying to me every night that he tucked me in, he said, Richard, you're more precious to me than the whole world. Richard, you mean more to me than the rest of the world. When Jesus prayed... He begins and he says, Daddy, Daddy. That's what Jesus invites us into. That's the relationship. When we pray, we come into the presence of our Daddy who's in heaven. Our Daddy who thinks the world of us. Who loved us so much that he gave us only son on our behalf. I want to encourage you this week when you pray. It may be weird at the, at the start. Just try praying, and as you, as you pray, begin by saying, Daddy. Secondly, <clears throat> Jesus' primary concern in this prayer is the glory of his Father. Jesus' primary concern is his Father's glory. He says in, in verse uh, one, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. That was a prayer of extreme consecration. Jesus offering himself completely to his Father, that his Father might be glorified. So when John talks about Jesus being glorified throughout his gospel, he's not talking about Jesus' resurrection or Jesus' return in glory, his second coming. In John's Gospel, the glory of Jesus was that moment when he was lifted up, not on a throne as a king, but when he was lifted up on the cross. That was the moment that Jesus was glorified. And Jesus prays, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. It's a wonderful idea that, that actually somehow the father's glory and the son's glory are all connected in that amazing moment. And what's really amazing is that actually we are drawn into that moment as well because it was on our behalf that it took place. But Jesus begins by consecrating himself again to the Father. It was great this morning as we were led in prayer to be able to take those few moments in silence and just offer this year again to God, to consecrate ourselves again to God. Thirdly, in verse 4, let me just read that, it says this. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus brings glory to God by completing the work that God had assigned for him to do. We bring glory to God by completing the work that he's assigned us to do. We bring glory to God by walking in that which he has called us to two and there's an amazing sense in which work and prayer cooperate 
They work together to bring glory to God. It's amazing to think that through our work, we're able to bring the kingdom. But Jesus also said, pray your kingdom come. Work and prayer cooperate. It's like they're two sides of the same coin. St. Benedict said that to work is to pray, but also to pray is to work. Through our work, through our prayer, we bring the kingdom. We see the kingdom of God coming to the earth. The amazing thing I think about prayer is that in some way our work is limited. It's limited by time and by geography, by the people that we have relationship with. And yet prayer is unlimited. It's unlimited in its scope and in its range. This morning we prayed for South Sudan. We prayed for Syria. We have that opportunity in prayer to shape the nations, to call the kingdom to earth. In verse 2 it says this, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. We pray to the one who has all authority. But we also see that that authority is not exercised in an authoritarian way. Prayer moves us into that place of tension between the divine will and human will. So Jesus has all authority. He offers eternal life. But he's also aware that not all will receive that gift. God wants all to come to repentance, all to be saved. But there's an acknowledgement that not all will accept the gift. Prayer brings us into that place of tension between the divine will and human will. Some of you may know that place painfully. I imagine that King Ethelbert's wife knew that tension day after day, crying out for her husband. 10 years in, 15 years in, 20 years in, 30 years in. Is God going to respond? Is this worth it? That place of tension between the divine will and the human will. Some of you may know that pain, that sense of disappointment over prayers that seem unanswered or that you live in that place of tension between the divine will and human will. Finally, in verse 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus makes it clear that eternal life is not something that simply begins when you die. But eternal life is a life that begins when we begin that journey of faith in God and in his Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is a life that's lived in relationship with God in the here and now, not just at that point in the future when we die. And prayer is one of the means by which we as frail humans draw close to God. 
draw close to daddy. It's one of the means by which we partner with the creator of the universe in seeing the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's also one of the means by which we as God's children grow in increasing knowledge and intimacy of our Father. What a privilege to come before the creator of the universe and say, Daddy, Daddy. Shall we stand together?